Oh, amen, amen, amen. Love that. Okay. Um, this morning, folks, um, well, today, um, just before we start into the uh, new series in Luke, um, I want to deal with uh, some resolutions this morning. Uh, so things that maybe we need to change. Tonight, uh, very much on the theme that Sophie was talking about earlier on, is that uh, we have a new year, but the same God. And so some things that are not changing, some things that we can hold on to for the year ahead. And so that's, that's tonight. But first of all, a huge congratulations to all of you. Well done. I am so proud of you. Each and every person in church this morning hasn't missed a service all year. Well done. I mean, this may be as good as it gets, folks. So well done. Well done. Um, New Year's Day, we took down our Christmas tree decorations. And by we, I mean Ruth. And in our house, we had this really weird sense then that where the house feels empty, it feels bare, the room doesn't quite look the way that it you know, feels. I thought we had more stuff than this. And it, you know the way the room doesn't always quite feel the same for a few days. Well, I've got a wee Christmas tree-related trivia question for you. Which shop first sold glass Christmas tree baubles, sort of mass-produced ones. It was Woolworths. Woolworths in Germany in 1890. Now, I tried to find out, just to make sure if that was the same Woolies that we know and once loved so dearly. Um, I honestly, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I got one bit of information that said that the same guy who started Woolworths here didn't start in Germany until the 1910s. But I really wanted to be the same. I just think that'd be amazing. Woolies. Love Woolies. Right. Now, as the ornaments got packed away in our house and we started putting all the, uh, the glass baubles and all the different things carefully and gently back into their box, I, I had a wee joke internally to myself that these ornaments last as long probably as my New Year's resolutions are going to last in that we bring them out for a month out into the open and then quietly have to pack them away again a couple of weeks later. Um, and that's pretty much how it goes. Only to next year, roll them out again to great fanfare and then put them away again after a month. Tends to be how my New Year's resolutions go. But I've got three New Year's resolutions for you this year that are not coming in any order of importance. One is not more important than the other, but they are coming to you in a sequence. They are coming to you in a sequence that I think flows helpfully into the next one. That if you get the first one right, it makes the second one easier, which makes the third one easier. Okay, so they're not more important, but they, I, I do think they come in a sequence. But crucially, before we start, you will not get through these resolutions on your own might or merit. You coming in and saying, I'm really determined this year to be more spiritually mature. I'm really determined this year to read my Bible more, to pray more. Whatever your New Year's resolution is, if it's to uh, lose weight or, or to be, eat more healthily or, or to spend more time with family or get the work-life balance, whatever it is, you will not do it if it's only in your own strength, or at least not for very long. Because that's not the secret to Christian resolve. John Piper this week in his podcast said that the mystery of holiness is that we live our lives in the strength of another. And he pointed to this verse in First Peter, let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies. And so as we come to these New Year's resolutions, 
don't come in with the attitude saying, I'm going to try really hard. But rather, I'm going to seek God and let him do this in me. Big difference. First resolution then I want to put before you is this. I resolve to pursue joy. I resolve to pursue joy. In Nehemiah 8, we read that the joy of the Lord is my strength. Now, in one sense, that is not a complicated verse. We understand the words, you know, okay, we understand joy, we understand strength, we understand the Lord, we understand the verse. But if I was to ask you if this was your experience, then it gets a wee bit more complicated. Because if things are going well for you this morning, you might be sitting there going, yes, amen, and hallelujah, the joy of the Lord is my strength. I'm on top of the world. If you're on a bit of a low, if it's been hard, the verse can feel like it's a bit of a mockery. <laughs> joy, you're having a laugh. Strength, <laughs> I wish. This is where Nehemiah comes to our help. This book is famous primarily for the account of the rebuilding of the walls uh, of Jerusalem after uh, a time in exile. Uh, and they set about uh, rebuilding what is broken. It's a clean slate, a fresh start. Nehemiah, by that sense, is a nice study for you if you're looking for something to study um, in the new year for, with new starts and fresh starts. Um, if you're not maybe working through a set, a set reading list, um, it, it, it's a wonderful way of saying, look, new starts and fresh beginnings are possible, but they're not easy. And it's a nice study if you keep that uh, in, in its context. But the bigger picture across this and across the New Testament, or sorry, the Old Testament, is that there are these several interwoven themes, one of which is the relationship between God and Israel as husband and wife, bride and groom. It's heartwarming. It's sweet because we see that for God, this relationship to his people is not uh, contractual. It's relational. It's not if you do X and Y by default, by by, by law, I will do one, two, and three. That's not how it works. Rather, um, rather than having this uh, transactional relationship, we see that it's emotional. There, there is a commitment beyond do's and don'ts. So often we can come to the Bible, and we're so determined that we're going to read more that we don't actually really kind of break into the depth of it. And it's kind of like the Apple terms and conditions. You know, you kind of scroll through, scroll through, scroll through. Where do I need it? Okay, yes, I agree. And then I can move on. And we kind of will agree without really getting too connected to it. We'll, we'll kind of scan it over. We'll skim through it, click the button, move on to what we really want to do. What if instead of God's law being less like terms of service, we thought of God's word as, as wedding vows? And throughout the Old Testament, we see that Israel is portrayed as the unfaithful wife. They, they keep walking out on God to love lesser things, lesser loves than who God is. Because ultimately, that's what sin is. If you need a definition of sin, sin is when we love something that is less than God. And we love it more than God. It's the definition of sin. And so after centuries of showing mercy and allowing his cheating wife to come back and back and back, only for her to go and turn and cheat again and cheat again and cheat again, God reaches a point where he sends his wife away. 
Israel is taken captive. They're, they go to Babylon in exile, and you've got the stories of Daniel and Esther and Ezra and all those guys. And there's a big question there because their land was a symbol of God's commitment and his love. Their temple was a symbol of God's commitment and love. So now they are, they're taken away from those things. How do they relate to God? Now that those things that they saw that God, that God gave them because he loved them, they don't have them anymore. So does God still love them? Does God still care? Is God still there? Is their special relationship so broken beyond repair? Could they ever get back to where they once were? And maybe that's your story with God this morning. You're in a place and you know that you used to be a whole lot closer to God than what you are right now. And there's part of you, maybe that would never admit it out loud, but there's part of you that's convinced that you'll never get back to that place where you once were where you enjoyed God and it was like that mountaintop experience and it was wonderful and you were so, those prayer times were so sweet and the Bible was just alive. And maybe it's been too many mistakes or the same mistake too many times or maybe it's just been too much time, too much apathy, too many going around circles. Let's read on. Because in Nehemiah, what happens is Ezra, the scribe, gathers all the people together and he reads to them from God's word and had skilled ministers or preachers explain the words and their meaning to the people. Nehemiah 8 verse 8 reads like this. It says, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly. The word of God should always be clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And once the people understood, really understood, in verse 9, we read that they wept. They realized that they had cheated on God. They realized that as they look around the rubble of the city of Jerusalem, that it's their fault, it's the consequences of their sin and their unfaithfulness that this has happened. And they are broken because they realize the cost of their sin. For most marriages it would be enough for divorce. Even in churches, most of us would find constant, persistent infidelity too much to forgive. It's a wonderful act of grace if you can forgive it once, but if that person is continually doing it, it would be very hard to keep forgiving. But that is what God had been doing. Now, every now and again, you'll hear of married couples renewing their vows. Uh, one website put it like this. Perhaps you've made it to two years, five years, 10, 25, 50 years together, and you want the world to know you do it all over again in a heartbeat. It's a nice idea. Or another reason that they gave was maybe you want to reaffirm your commitment to each other after a rough period in your relationship. And that's where we are with Nehemiah. The, the renewal of the marriage vows, the renewal of that covenant relationship. Uh, the people see that they have been wretchedly sinful, wretchedly unfaithful. And here they are, as it were. They're standing in this beautiful wedding dress, and they realize exactly what they've done. And yet, and before them stands the groom, ready to make those commitments again. But they feel so crushed by their guilt and the weight of their cheating hearts. How could they not weep? 
But Nehemiah then stands and says, don't weep, feast, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine, share out your portions, do not be grieved. Why? Why should we not grieve over our sinfulness? Why should we not grieve over the things that we know we've done wrong? Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. So get the picture here. The bride is grief-stricken and ashamed. And yet there stands the groom. He's immaculately dressed, just as he was when they first made their vows together. And he is transfixed on his bride, his face beaming with joy. And he holds out his hands expectantly, full of delight. And the warmth of love that he feels as he looks on this bride that he adores, and he radiates joy. She is his delight. And he hears the vows and he thinks, yes, I'm still committed. Yes, these are the promises that I will always keep to her. I have kept them till today. I will keep them for forever. I can't wait to declare these promises again to her and to all who would listen. This is God's posture to his people in Nehemiah and today. In three times in verses 9, 10, and 11, we read that this was a holy day. It's, it was special. It, it, it was profound. It was from God, and it was a day that boomed across the universe. You are still my people. I am still your God. I still love you. I'm still committed to you. I haven't changed. I know exactly what you've done. I know your story. I know everything that's going on, yet I am unchanging and I am steadfast. There was no shaming here in Nehemiah. There was no, I told you so. No, you better do it right next time or this is it. We're finished. We're through. There was only joy. There was only love. And I read Nehemiah 8, and I was thinking I was going to pull out some thoughts about the importance of getting into the Word and the change that the Word of God can make to you. But, but, but here I just stand, and I am just overwhelmed by the fact of who God is, a wildly passionate husband who is brimming with love that almost looks foolish for his bride. <laughs> she doesn't deserve this kind of love, but there he is, loving her anyway brimming with joy over his flawed and broken-hearted bride. And I see that, and I realize that as inconsistent as I am in my faith, with all the ups and downs and all the twirling around and all the times when I maybe get things right and maybe get things wrong, I realize that God still delights in me. He has not wavered in his devotion to me, even if sometimes we waver in our devotion to him. And I am filled with a profound joy that cannot be compared to anything that this world can offer. My God still delights in me. He's not ashamed of me. He knows exactly who I am. But he is still for me, exactly like he was whenever he saved me at the beginning. And this joy, if, if I can hold on to this joy, if I resolve to seek this joy, this profound joy, I will find a strength to keep going, to keep serving, to keep living for Him, even if I'm inconsistent, especially because I'm inconsistent. 
I will keep going because the joy that the Lord has for me is a great source of strength for whatever I'm facing. That, that he doesn't just like me, that he doesn't just tolerate me, but my God loves me. My God still delights in me. Folks, first thing that we need to do is we go into a new year as we move forward into a new decade, a new week. Resolve to pursue this joy. Be committed, be dedicated to finding it and holding on to this joy because it is anchored in who He is. It's in who He is. And if we anchor ourselves, first of all, in that, that gives us something to build on for the rest of the year. That, that for my sake and for the sake of all who trust in him, he allowed himself to die. No one forced him. He willingly gave his life for me as a sinner. He did it all for love, paying the debt that I could not pay for his runaway bride. And when he looks at us now, washed in the work that Christ has done, he says, you are my beloved. How I feel about you has not changed. I loved you when you were lost in sin. I love you still as a son. I love you still as a daughter. As inconsistent as you may be. And I find that even though I am consistently inconsistent, he is still there. He has not changed. Uh, And our string of failures can be obliterated by confession. Our apathy can dissolve through affectionate forgiveness. And I breathe that in, and I find my strength renewed. I find my strength uh, sore, and my strength building. That strength that comes from not simply being known by God, but being treasured by God. First resolution. Second resolution. I resolve to pursue holiness. Because if we know the joy of being treasured by him, holiness is treasuring him in return. Okay? So we first of all realize who he is and what he's done. We anchor ourselves in who he is. Holiness is the response. Treasuring the God who treasures us. Loving the one who first loved us. So many verses we could explore, characters we could have studied, but I can't ignore the verse that means the most to me. First Peter uh, 1 says, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do for it is written. Be holy, because I am holy. It's a simple command. Be holy. Why? Because God's holy. Be like him. Now, the word holy here means to be set apart for God's use. So, so link this back to joy. Because of how we are treasured by God, God says the right response is to treasure him in return. Be dedicated, be set apart. So when God says, be holy as I am holy, be dedicated to my service, be committed, set apart for my glory in the same way that God himself is set apart for his own glory. The verse is meaningful because that was the verse that led me to stop pursuing a career in, in teaching. In, in, in like school teaching and applied at Bible college, uh, it hit me hard. I heard distinctly God said to me that night in Lauren, Jeff, I'm calling you out to be dedicated to me. 
Now, it's so important that we get joy and holiness together. If we only have joy and not have holiness, we have silliness. And there are a lot of very silly, uh, shallow Christians out there. And they want to pursue a lot of joy, but there's nothing about a commitment. There's nothing about a dedication to lifting up the name of God. It's an empty joy. It's not built on anything. It's like having a wedding because you like getting a nice dress or having a wedding because you, you like having a party. It's not because you have a serious commitment to loving and treasuring that other person. But of course, on the same hand, I, I know a lot of people, a lot of Christians, and they're very serious about holiness and they've got very little joy. And they're just terrible people to be around. They, they are. We all know some people like this. And they're a miserable bunch of sour pusses that you've ever met. And it's not nice spending time with them. Because they're always judging. They're always negative. They're always critical. Everyone's always wrong. And they're always right. That's not who God is. Love by its nature radiates joy. So we've, we've got three weddings next year in the church, and it's exciting. We'll have another one in the books for next year, and another one whenever that may be. It's exciting. It's amazing. It's wonderful. But they're also serious times. Weddings are a serious event because it's about a serious bond, about people being seriously committed to loving each other. But imagine if one of the uh, engaged couples or one of the people in that couple live their life as if they were single. They still uh, texted pictures of themselves to members of the opposite sex, uh, meeting up with them and uh, kind of being leading, leading them on. You might make people think, well, I thought they were engaged. Maybe they're not engaged. Or maybe they might say, well, actually, that engagement, they are engaged, but it doesn't mean an awful lot. But so too it is with Christians who claim to be saved, and yet there's nothing about their life that says, I belong to someone else, and I am serious about this. I treasure him. I know he loves me, but I love him too. He treasures me, but I treasure him as well. I belong to someone. I'm in a serious, committed relationship. How we live matters as believers. And, and like, uh, I know that we are under grace and we're not under the law. And so I'm not here to dictate to you how that should look in the same way that my marriage will not look like anyone else's marriage because relationships are distinct to the people who are in them. So how you relate to God might be different to me. But one thing is universal. One thing is absolutely specific across all of Scripture. Everything we do should reflect that we are treasured by God and that we treasure Him in return. Colossians 3, 17 says, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to Him, the Father, through Him. See, it doesn't say when you only do these things. It says, look, whatever it is that you're doing, whatever it is, Make sure it's for the glory. Or in 1 Corinthians 10, in relation to whether you should have eat food or, or not eat the food that's been offered to idols, Paul in the long run is saying, look, it doesn't really matter. They're not real gods. But you don't want to be offending people. 
And so you have to kind of read the situation and understand what's happening. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, So whether you eat or drink, whatever way you land on that argument, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So he says, look, you can come down on the right thing, but if you're not bringing glory to God, it's not the right thing. How we live matters. And so to the person this morning who is holding on to wrongs and are not willing to forgive, to the person in church this morning who needs gossip to feel significance in their friendship circle, to the person who needs alcohol to have a good time, to the person who who has a wandering eye, to the person who has a careless tongue, to the person who justifies their sin by saying, well, technically there's no verse against it. How you live matters. Resolve to pursue a joy that comes from being treasured by God, but then seek to pursue holiness, a life that tells the world that you treasure him. And the third one, just as we finish, resolve to pursue graciousness. I I said that these aren't more important than the other, but there is a sequence to them. Here's my logic. It starts with the gospel. And joy is found in seeing God's love for me, even though I still mess up, even though I'm inconsistent, and that he delights in me, and I delight in the grace that he has lavished upon me and the grace that sustains me. Holiness, then, is my response to God in that love and in that joy and in that delight. And since such a God has been so kind to me to give me this new life, even though I've messed up time and time and time and time and time and time again, then I too will give people around me the grace whenever they, if they, when they mess up as well. Hurt people hurt people. Forgiven people forgive people. And people of grace are people of grace, full stop. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. So if you're here this morning and nobody has annoyed you yet this year, you'll nod your head and go, yes, that's amazing, absolutely. Don't get sucked into every gripe. Don't let people bring you down to their level. Amen, that's wonderful. Rise above it. Oh, yes, it's to your credit. Hallelujah. But it's only the 5th of January. Chances are it'll come soon enough. At some point, someone will do something because nobody's perfect. And so imperfect people, by definition, are going to be imperfect. You're going to get imperfect things said. You're going to have imperfect things done. And maybe that will be even sinful words or sinful deeds. But God is glorified in lavishing grace upon me whenever I oh so consistently fail and stumble. Then so too is it a glory to us when we imitate God in this way and overlook an offense. Not just through gritted teeth and going, <laughs> not, no, none of that. But rather, we lavishly show grace to those who wrong us as well. The theory is always good. And then the offenses come. And we often find them too large to look over. Although, to be honest, the size of offense usually doesn't really matter. A spouse is in consistent fault-finding or nagging 
a boss's unfair criticism of the rudeness of a stranger, given the right circumstances or getting us at just that right moment and whenever we're just at the right vulnerability to this. It can dominate our mind and the peripherals blur and the tunnel vision comes down and we fixate on the offense. And people will leave a church because someone offended them. Even if we catch it quickly, we have maybe already fought fire with fire or tone for tone or passive aggression for passive aggression and job for job or whatever it is. Or even if we give ourselves brownie points because we didn't outwardly go and tell them exactly what we thought about them and what they said or what they'd done, but inside we kind of just had that wee volcano exploding and we treat them, we're off with them, we're slightly different with them. People who delight in God and delight in how God delights in them, will have committed to being committed for God, they find it easier. Now, I'm not saying they find it easy. I'm saying they find it easier to forgive other people's sin. And they'll find it easier to not get sucked into sinful attitudes themselves. People who live conscious of God's grace towards them find it easier to show God's grace to others. Folks, resolve within yourselves to pursue a gracious attitude with others. Peter, in writing to Christians who struggled continually, hopefully that's maybe a wee bit light, but he says this, 1 Peter 2, this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And the key to that, the key to enduring, the key to that, to being gracious being mindful of God. How do we do that? We remember that God is with us. Whenever we get offended, sometimes as a way of turning us into momentary atheists, where we just forget that God's there and it feels that God's left us and that God doesn't care. If God loved us, he would not. But we forget that God is not only in, in, alive and real, but that he's in the room. He saw the offense. He, and so being mindful of God means first and foremost remembering that God is here and he sees He's not unaware of the wrongs that have happened to you. He's not unaware of the thing that they said or the thing that they've done or didn't say or didn't do, whatever it happens to be. But we also remember that God is using that offense for our good. God does not watch on as a member of the audience. He's the director of the play. He is sovereign. He's in control. He has allowed it, and so therefore it must have a purpose. It has a reason. So being mindful of the one who brings you to it means that you'll be mindful of the one who will bring you through it. Remember that Joseph was able to say to his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. It took him a while to say it, but he said it. And when we believe that, we're less inclined to bitterness. We're less inclined to revenge because we're prepared to step back and see if God is doing something and to see what the opportunity to grow is or what the opportunity to serve is or to show the world that greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world, that I can overcome all these obstacles. I can overcome these things through him who is in me. Because First Peter 2 tells us, promises that we can endure if we're mindful of God. And so we're living for him, delighting in him, trusting in him. And the mindset means that whoever it is that has wronged us, if we're mindful of God, 
we're mindful of that spiritual element in the world, and we realize that our offender, whoever it is that has wronged us, if they are outside of Christ, doesn't need us to hate them, but needs us to love them, to forgive them, and to pray for them. And if the person who's wronged us is a Christian, who should know better, they still need our love. They still need our prayers. They still need our compassion. Paul told the Romans, Romans 12, 21, we do not overcome evil with evil, but we overcome evil with good. So as we close, I pray these resolutions will become your prayers. That you will renew your commitments to him to renew these promises because when you do, he's standing with open arms this morning to say, Lord, I resolve to pursue this joy that's anchored in your grace, that's anchored in the gospel. God, I resolve to pursue holiness. I want to live a life that reflects how much I care about you and I treasure you above all the lesser things that vie for my attention. And Lord, I, I resolve I, I am determined to pursue graciousness with others. Three resolutions this year, folks. I pray that you will take them and apply them and live by them this year. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, <coughs> I, I pray that we will serve with the strength that you have you, you supply. Lord, I pray that you'll meet the need that is so obvious to ourselves in our own lives. Lord, we have a habit of looking around and thinking that everyone's either terrible or everyone's either perfect. And Lord, we always look everywhere except maybe inwards. So, so Lord, I, I pray that rather than fixating on everyone else's imperfections, Lord, you'd help us to show grace, to show love, to show tenderness, to show compassion, because we are people who are mindful of the tenderness and goodness and compassion and kindness that you have shown to us. Father, I pray that the gospel would be central to what we think about and, and what shapes our lives this year. And Lord, I pray then that from that, holiness and grace will flow out. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen. I'm going to ask the musicians to come back. We're going to sing another piece. And then we'll go in.